0: Soda, but why? This week, I'm joined by author and racial equality activist, Sophie Williams, who you might know as running the Instagram account Official Millennial Black. Now, Sophie and I have some common ground. We are both ex-advertising, and I say ex feeling a little bit funny about it because I never intentionally left my career. I just found that I, I wiggled into a different part of it, and I think Sophie is similar, but... Her background as chief operating officer and mine as a creative director meant that we have some similar experiences in terms of being women in what has historically been quite a male industry and in Sophie's case, being a black woman in that space. So we have some interesting chats about that. But the main reason I invited Sophie on is to talk about the work she's done through her books. Um, Her first book, Anti-Racist Ally, is an introduction to action and activism. And there's a lot that we could could have picked up on. The starting point was that why allyship isn't about what you believe, but it's about what you do. So it's not about box ticking or quick fixes. This is about the actual actions that you take. Um, Sophie is very skilled at making a very complex and nuanced subject seem very easy and straightforward, for which I'm very grateful to her for, and that is the case in her book, but also in our conversation. So, without me rambling any further, let's get on and listen to our conversation. Hi, Sophie. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. Just got to let the old heart rate go down from the technology battles that, you know, just part of it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that is what every day is now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's just these like intense bits of stress, and then you're like, okay, we got through that. But let's crack on. Um, Before we really get into it, but can you do the possibly the most tricky job of introducing yourself and um, saying who you are and what you've been up to?
1: Yeah. Um, So, hi, I'm Sophie Williams. I'm the author of anti-racist ally and millennial black and yeah i guess that is who i am and what i've been up to i guess for the last year um writing those two books has sort of been the majority of what i do i run the artificial millennial black instagram account and i am a racial equality um activist to the best of my ability i saw
0: actually a post you did the other day when um, people were referring to the, the team behind Millennial Black and you're like oh no not so much of a team it, it's just mainly me it, and I'm right in saying that aren't I yeah it's only me <laughs> which is a big job and also you have a a, a normal day job Is not a normal day job that's a weird piece of language but you have a, that, this isn't your job
1: well it kind of has become my job so just, just jump straight into it so yeah I used to be the chief operating officer of an advertising agency. And I sort of had a career in advertising and I managed that agency through an acquisitions process and then decided not to stay, to be part of that new business mm-hmm. because it would be just like a very different vibe to what I was sort of there for. Um, so then I went freelance and then COVID happened and so much freelance, um, life freelance opportunities, freelance work in creative industries sort of went away. But I already had my book deal to write Millennial Black. And so I was like, okay, I'll focus on that for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of the Instagram happened and the other book happened and sort of everything else happened. So at the moment that sort of has become my, my main job writing and talking and going into businesses and talking about anti-racism. But I do start a new job on Monday. No, next Monday. So yeah, I've been busy. <laughs>
0: So there's been a hater. So actually, um, my background is agencies. I was a mm. creative director, I was at um, B&B, and then I was at Grey, and then I went to Facebook. Mm. So we've had a similar career trajectory. It, and it's, and I've, it's quite weird for me to say it in retrospect, because is it retrospect? I haven't been in agencies for four years now, but I never really realised that I left. I just yeah. had a pause, and that yeah. pause
1: has, has come yeah. over. Yeah, people and, keep asking me about leaving agencies. And I'm like, oh, did I? I don't. Maybe.
0: Yeah, and I wonder whether this is like getting a bit niche into that into that world. But I wonder whether more and more talent will end up having two jobs and and doing this kind of thing and doing that because the the, the downfall of advertising is if it stays in its its own little world. You know, it's. I, It was so all-encompassing, and that was I lived and breathed advertising. And then when you step outside of it, you think, oh, people don't really care about advertising, and in in the best possible sense, and it's really important
1: to keep check of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really lucky that I spent most of my time not working on the kind of ads that I think people think of when they think of ads, Mm -hmm. because I think primarily what that is is something that people will pay to avoid, you know you get you know you get Netflix or you get um Prime or you get whatever that is, and you 're paying for the content that you want, but also not to have to watch adverts, not to have yeah. to be interrupted in what you 're doing and so i didn't really want to have a career where I was making things that people would pay to avoid like I have an ad blocker on my on my computer like i don 't want to see that it 's not what you 're in that space for, so I was really lucky that the majority of what I was doing was organic social content so a broadcaster like Netflix would come and say we're launching a new season of The Crown how can you make a environment that sort of gives people what they want so they can engage more deeply in that sort of in that rather than stuff that I was doing early on in my career which was like can you help us sell this toothpaste like yeah "Yeah, but I'd rather not.
0: But do you think that you benefited from having cut your teeth to the cliche in, in selling toothpaste. Do you think, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to me that the, the industry now is, is this everyone's a creative, everyone, so many people have a platform, so many people are making great content, but do they need to have understood brand strategy, do you think, or not?
1: I think for me, it's really helpful that I've understood organic social. And I think that my work on instagram which is really sort of what's been the platform for doing so much of what i've been doing in this last year have benefited from understanding how to i guess how to make something that people want to engage with um and like what social best practices and all of that stuff yeah um i don't i don't know if like doing a pet food ad or like a a toothpaste ad was helpful but i don't think it was a hindrance i think it I think there's been lots of times where people have come to me and said you have to do this and I've been able to say I absolutely don't because I know how this works as well and I think that's probably the main advantage of it
0: but I think um I was re looking rereading your book last night and the backstory of um and this is your first book um how to be an anti-racist ally um is is very cute and I'll talk about this in a minute and and Small and pink, and I've got a two-year-old, a three-year-old daughter who is like an absolute magpie, and she basically steals anything that she thinks looks desirable. So she stole my first copy and uh, smashed <laughs> it somewhere, but I got a new one. But what I absolutely loved is that the way you package that, and I was reading that it's deliberately at a um, low price point so that it could, so that people could behave a bit more like they do with social, which is to buy. F- <laughs> To, to share it with one another and to pass it mm. on I was just like oh that is such a crystal clear bit of thinking but that changes your relationship with a book it, yeah yeah,
1: so, I think yeah it was- so many people I messaged this morning from from someone who was like oh I've read it and I've now given it to somebody else and I think For some people, that would be like, no, somebody else can buy it. But that's exactly what I wanted. I Mm -hmm. wanted it it small enough and affordable enough that you could buy it and then just give it to someone who needs it. Um, That was really important to me. And I think that whole accessibility story is really important to me. So it's small, it's affordable, it's digital, there's an audio book. I don't want to just reach out to one group of people who can access one thing or who have disposable income. Because I think the message is more important than that
0: and also um again something that we connected over was like the the process of writing a book On what I was coming back to it now I'm not deeply in my own book you have you have distilled a huge amount of experience and thinking and po- you know you've distilled it down into such a simplified version like you can you can you can just digest it and I think Again, that is a that's a hugely difficult thing to do to make something so nuanced and complicated feel like I, you can pick it up and um, and absorb it.
1: Thank you. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be like, to be honest, because to be honest, I had nine days to write that book, start to finish, from what? me going to Harper Collins, "Do you want to do this?" to them saying, "Yeah, can I have it next week?" Essentially, um, that was a really quick process, so I didn't really lots of people like to talk about sort of what that process was like and how I planned it and distilled it and did all of that stuff. But I didn't have time to do any of that. I just had to be like, okay, here's what I've got to say. Let's say it quickly. Um, And I think that sort of lack of time to overcomplicate it Mm -hmm. is probably what it's benefited from. And I had a conversation with um, a school last week and they were like, oh, you know, we've got it in our school library and this year nine student wants to interview you and do all of it," And I was like, that's ama- i have never imagined that it would because it's quite a complicated subject and topic, yeah, and lots of words in it that confuse clever adults, and so um not my book in particular, but like the conversation around mm-hmm. race intersectionality and all of that stuff, so yeah, I think the sort of smallness and design ledness of it has really opened it out to audiences I never imagined, which has been which interesting
0: is, which is yeah um <sighs> who's the wonderful writer who wrote um I may destroy you and I heard her on Louis through and she's like when you make something you make it up into a point and then you let it go and you don't mm. know where it's going to go and it really only becomes its thing once it's out into the public domain you know mm. it's, it's, and, and I'm thinking about with the, the kids in school my instinct is that kids get it kids are so much smarter they haven't been conditioned their instincts are really good they're much more purist and if yeah I bet I don't know it's just me guessing but it's such a powerful audience to have to be talking to isn't it
1: yeah and I really hadn't expected it so now I'm trying to think about how can I if this is an audience who wants to have this conversation how can I be more available to that audience how can I sort of put myself where they are but it's just the very beginning of my thinking about it. I, um, <laughs> yeah, i got, I got stuff to, to figure out.
0: But, you know, it will percolate, How hey? you just need to, yeah. to sit it there. So to go back a step, um, again, for people who don't know, what is the kind of the elevator pitch for the book and um, what, you, what, it, what you were trying to do with it and what it stands for?
1: So it is called... Anti-racist ally an introduction to action and activism and it's a really small book and it's just for people who either want to start their journey from being not racist to being actively anti-racist or for people who have started that journey but feel like they've hit a bit of a brick wall and want to know how to sort of keep up that momentum or spread that into other areas of their life.
0: I get the impression you might have you've 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 nailed that. (laughs) It's a really I'm full of admiration to have like got it down to something. And I'm I'm actually what I don't want to do is to actually give away loads of the content now because I think that people ought to go and buy and read it and and it's very easy. Um, my instinct is it's very easy for people to do a lot of top line listening around this kind of subject and and not to go and actually pick up and digest things but broadly allyship the bit the 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 big thing that I took up, well, there's, there's so much to take away from it, but one thing that really stayed, stayed with me is that allyship is what you do, not what you believe, that it, that it is an action. And that is a, a
1: very important transition, isn't it? Yeah, if someone was going to take one thing from it, I would want it to be that. So that's really good to hear. <laughs> like um, a <laughs> because so often people are like, I'm not racist. So the conversation around race and racism has nothing to do with me. I'm not part of it. But I think what I'm trying to do is actually get people to be in that active state of just not not doing something, but actively trying to be part of changing something. And the the layer on
0: top of that is that in order to, to get to that point, you have to really sit with what feels extremely uncomfortable because when it's something like race and racism what we what we all want to do is say oh that isn't me I absolve myself of responsibility it's some other bad person and to be truly showing up in this you have to go right how am I responsible and and what does that look like? And it, it isn't comfortable. And that's that. There is no way you could. I think we're so used to sugarcoating things or going, oh, don't worry. Or, you know, yeah, not being with uncomfortable feelings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So often people are like, but what's the one thing? What's the one solution to end racism? Like, there's not one. <laughs> and people really want that. They really, like, I feel like if we could say, if everyone on Wednesday did this, and we, we will solve this. I feel like people would do it, but they're much less inclined to have an answer that's like you on your own, me on my own. We're not going to solve this. We have to understand that it's not a six month or even five year plan. We have to just work, work, work and understand that things will get better sometimes in big ways that we can see but often in small ways that we don't even recognize until so many of them have happened. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to somebody who was talking about, um, we don't need, yeah, five-year plans. We need generational plans. Mm. And I talk about things in like glacial time, geographic Mm. time. We're so used to like, you're saying quick fixes. And I mean, I'm so used to like immediate gratification on Instagram and people like, I like that. And I'm like, I'm a good person. Look, like but we have to to do important long-term work we have to be able to move away from that immediate gratification cycle mm. which is hard dopamine's nice
0: yeah it is we're all used to getting to an end result and being able to put put a tick on a box and mm-hmm. go and and move on and and this is it. this is yeah life's work and i think that is really we are not in an era where life's work at anything is something That we're used to anymore. It's
1: really
0: hard, but yeah. Again, it is what it is, and and so yeah. I'm I'm wondering how much to delve into it. No, I really just urge everyone to go and buy it. But what is exciting is your your the book. So I, I think I'm right understanding this journey. You were actually writing another book before you this one came out and birthed itself, so to speak. (laughs) So tell me a bit more about um, book number two and when it's out and what the journey's been on that.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. It's such a weird little story, I think. So book number two is called Millennial Black. And in my head, that's book number one. Yeah, that's your, yeah. It's the thing I've been working on for all of this time. Um, Whereas I sort of viewed Anti-Racist Ally as a bit of a freelance project. I was just like, okay, nine day turnaround, quick bit of work, let's get that done. Amazing. Um, <laughs> which I don't think the publishers liked, I think they, <laughs> but I was yeah. like, okay, here's what we're doing and here's the time frame, and let's get this done. Um, but Millennial Black, so I was working in advertising as we've mentioned, and I was a project manager, producer, head of production, chief operating officer. So I was in this sort of very, very senior place by the time I was chief operating officer um the advertising is a very very white very very male very very middle class um environment industry and um i went to drama school and so i might sound like i might be at least one of those groups but i'm not any of those groups um or at least not um originally and i would find that i had really good relationships internally with the team that i was managing and working with but then when people would come in for interviews or when third parties would come in, they would not really know what to do with me. So I'd be the person who would be the most senior person in the room, but they would sort of expect that I was going to be the person who was taking notes or making coffees, or I had people come in and I'd be like, okay, do you want to sit here for a minute? And they'd be like, yep, yeah, I'll just wait here until like the people are ready. And I am like, no, I'm, I'm the people, the people. I yeah. yeah. This is going to be a fun meeting. Um, and so I was like, okay, what's going on here? Partially, it's what people expect from the industry, but maybe I'm also doing something. Maybe there's some very quick talking. Maybe I'm also doing something. Maybe there's something that I can change here. So I started looking for books about black women in leadership.
0: Mm -hmm. And your
1: listeners obviously can't see me. I'm a black woman, but I am an incredibly privileged black woman with my proximity to whiteness. I am incredibly light-skinned. I have blue eyes and freckles and, you know... um, The people who have darker skin have a much harder time in this than I do. But I was trying to sort of do what I could to be proactive in my career. Mm So I'm going to find a book about this. Only to find out that that book doesn't really exist. There are lots of books about women in leadership. But I couldn't find any that mentioned blackness as well as womanness. And I couldn't also find any that mentioned blackness and womanness and millennial outlooks because I don't think that we as a generation are looking for the same things that previous generations have been looking for. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're looking for a job for life or a corner office mm-hmm. or any of that. I, like, I want to work flexibly and I want to work in my pajamas on my sofa if that's how I'm going to do my best work that day. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't find the book that I needed. And so I wrote it,
0: I guess. I mean it's all it's a cliche isn't it but that is the the best reason to write something because and also it means that you're writing it on your own journey again Mm. that feels like a really cliche bit of language but I can only imagine because am I right I think you interviewed you spoke to a lot of um amazing women and what a what a wonderful thing to get to pick their brains and learn from their experiences were there commonalities Um, across their experiences
1: huge commonalities commonalities of just being underestimated of being underpaid of being trapped at the same level for a long long time but then I also got to ask people what's your favorite thing about being a black woman and that was my favorite bit of every interview because people you know people had been talking about all these things that had been hard in their careers and then they got to be like being a black woman's amazing I know I've told you all these things that have been hard but sort of you know we're the source of the source and we are just amazing and we're resilient and we've done this and we've done that and like Liv Little was like and I'm in love with a black woman as well and we're incredible and just like hearing all of these joyful stories was such a nice way to end every interview yeah every chapter in the book ends with someone's favorite thing about being a black woman and that felt really important to me
0: yeah really important I'm wondering, when is your book, when is your launch? It's out on the 15th of April. Oh, I was wondering whether you're going to be able to get all of those women in a room, but probably Maybe not.
1: So. No, it's so I've spent so much time talking to these women and like writing, like transcribing their thoughts. And I've yeah. never met any of them. I've never oh. been in a room with any, I've never seen my book in a bookshop I've never met my editors in person I've never done any of that stuff have you met your editors no
0: no yeah like sign sign the contract on a kind of digital doc yeah Yeah, it's, it's but yeah you more so than me when you're inhabiting other people's stories which I've done definitely for a bit you you they really you ingest it I think you really yeah. they really sit so deeply in your yeah. in your mind and in your subconscious even it's like yeah. it's a really intimate thing to have done
1: I mean even more so this week I've been doing the audiobook of it and so I've been reading out their words, their words. And reading out long interviews and just being like well I don't think this is how Candice Brathwaite would say this but <laughs> this is my I'm not going to do an impression of someone so this is like my yeah. voice. so but yeah I was so happy to be able to interview these women because, as I said, my experience is not representative of all black women's experience. There's no singular experience. And my white proximity gives me privilege. So I wanted to make sure I spoke to trans women, to queer women, to dark-skinned black women, to women in different industries, because so often we're told that we can just have one story, and that's the story for all of a marginalized group. And we don't do that with other groups. We don't say, what is the story of being a white man? We don't really do that. And so I wanted to make sure that I made space for other voices in the work that I was doing because there's no way I'm the only person who's pitched a book like this, but I'm the one that they've said yes to. And if I can use that to sort of, Open the door to some other voices in that space, and that's what I want to try
0: to do. Yeah, in your book, you um, reference, and actually, probably when that it went out, you didn't have any idea what it was going to become. But having a platform is such a, a huge privilege. You know, having the, the opportunity to have your voice heard is absolutely like wild, such a wild privilege. Actually, sometimes yeah. when it becomes your norm and you're just posting stuff, and then sometimes I try and think about. That kind of people in a room, in a stadium, whatever, and go, oh my word, what? How fortunate am I, and and, and not to take that for granted?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, it's a responsibility as well. Um, yeah. It's really interesting, I think. Yeah, and it's never something I planned. I never planned to be someone with a following. It just happened, and then I was like, okay, how can I try to do the best that I can with this?
0: I mean, didn't it, for Aunt Iron, I think it happened really quickly? That it happened quickly. What kind of spike did, like, in a couple of. Did Justin Bieber post something that you.
1: He did, but that was not helpful.
0: Wasn't <laughs> it? Did it go.
1: No. He didn't tag me. He just posted it as though it was his own thing. Oh, well, that's shit. Like,
0: that's not useful. <laughs> that's um, bad vibes.
1: <laughs> but yeah, I had a couple of hundred followers because when I sold Millennial Black to HarperCollins, I felt like everyone had a book deal was an influencer and I absolutely wasn't and I was like okay but what I do know is social from my work yeah so I'm gonna get these handles that'll be really annoying if the book comes out and I can't even have my own accounts so I got the official millennial black handle and we're just like posting like oh here's this cool black woman hairstyle here's this and that and then George Floyd was murdered Ahmed Aubrey was murdered Brianna Taylor was murdered, someone spat in Belly Majinga's face in the UK and she died. Like all of these terrible Mm. things. And so many more, so many more names that we don't know and I don't know and we don't say kept happening. And I just put a post out on that account to like the couple of hundred people there. And then essentially overnight, I had like almost 10,000 followers. And I was like, I'm going to do a swipe up. What's that like? And then within, I'd say, a week, I was at like 100, 150,000. It just really ballooned and it was really scary. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to try not to have any typos now and really sort of fact check any third party things that I'm putting out. Um, But yeah, it was never planned and it was really overwhelming.
0: I was going to say and it's an it was an overwhelming time for many reasons but to suddenly have I imagine you're getting a lot of inward traffic as well people mm-hmm. wanting to communicate I think that's a real you know if my platform has grown really gradually but and i have to learn where the boundaries are on how much i talk to people and it's not for want of wanting to talk to everyone about everything but you've still got to be a person at the end of the day and maybe occasionally talk to your partner and you know you can end up giving and giving and giving how have you navigated that
1: i was really bad at it to be in with because I felt like people were messaging me and they were saying, I've just signed my first ever petition, got on my first ever protest. I've made my first ever donation. And I wanted to be like, yes, okay, great, keep going. And like, I wanted to try to engage with every single person who was messaging me or commenting or sharing. And not only can you not do that physically, Instagram <laughs> doesn't let you do that. Yes, like... They're like, you're clearly a spam account. I said, no, I'm trying to be nice to people. Um... So now I have a much better boundary and like I will say thank you when people send me nice things or when they reshare my work. Um, But I just can't respond to everybody all the time because, again, like you said at the beginning, people presume because it's not. And I put my face on my profile now, but previously it was just like a lot of infographics, a lot of graphic led content. So people didn't know that there was a person there it seemed like a team or it seemed like a business or whatever so i've really tried to I sort of think about it as trying to become like a character in my own story mm. i try to be someone instead of like a removed entity if that makes sense
0: and a quick break to tell you about a podcast that i'm loving it's called ian Wright's everyday people each week writer goes on a journey to discover the real life heroes that are the beating heart of our communities From the military father who walked 700 miles barefoot to raise money for his daughter's medical research, to the woman who founded a community kitchen to support Grenfell Tower survivors. The stories shared on this show are heartwarming and emotional, which is just about my favourite combination. For more stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, follow Ian Wright's Everyday People, with new episodes available every Tuesday on all major podcast platforms. Having had the last year's experience, and sorry, when did you start writing uh, Millennial Black? Oh, last year as well?
1: So I sold it to HarperCollins in December of 2019. Yeah, okay. So just... I wrote written like two chapters before that, and then, yeah, I wrote most of it last year. Um, I typed so much that now on my laptop, the E, I, and O have just come <laughs> off. Like, I'm not well, allowed to otherwise... anymore. Just, it never imagined that level of use, I don't
0: think. I mean, you actually probably don't really want to know the hours spent. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely don't. wild. It's wild. But I'm wondering if, if you were to go back into your last role before you not left advertising before you you know what I mean <laughs> whether or even to you at the beginning of your career knowing what you know now what you've learned through this experience do you, what would you say to yourself or would you would you do things differently
1: I don't think I do things differently retrospectively because I think everything I, do, I used to hate when people said this shit everything I've done has sort of led me Literally. to where I am now but it's kind of true like <laughs> yeah. when I was 20 I was like fuck off now I'm like all right okay cool Um, But I am starting a new job, uh, not Monday, but the Monday after, so on the 1st of March. And I think I'm going to just be a very different person to who I was when I left my last job in 2019. Maybe even before that. Yeah, I think that all of this has just made me have to be comfortable saying this is what i want to say this is how i'm going to say it and you can respond to that however you want and however feels correct to you but this is who i am and i don't think i had a good vision of who i was before But uh, what a um,
0: powerful opportunity! You know, you, you do start day one there. You it's you know you, it's very hard to to step into a room and be step into your power. I know that's a real cliche. If you if if you've been stepping into that room for years, but to yeah. to go, like, I'm a bit into all this stuff. But the universe is, has created some timings that feel quite special I think for you Mm -hmm. and to go in and be like this this is who I am now the um, byline on my book is uh, how to answer tricky questions from kids by having honest conversations with yourself Mm -hmm. and then once you've kind of put honesty in your byline and then people start being really honest with you you're like "Ah, right this is um, this is what I profess to like and I have to sit with that bit where I go this is this is difficult. And same for you, you've got to you've got to show up for yourself, haven't you? Even on the yeah. days when that feels, maybe it feels hard, maybe it doesn't ever feel hard. I'm projecting onto you. my issues
1: feels, onto you. It feels scary sometimes. But I think part of what I've also had to learn is to take feedback. I used to be really bad at taking feedback. If someone was like, that's not right, I'd be like, well, I wish you weren't in my life. So yeah. now I'm able, when I'm making stuff, like you said, you put something into the world and you don't have control of it anymore. And as much as that's uncomfortable for me, I'm a very sort of deliberate planned person in in a lot of ways. Um, This has been really useful for me in being able to take feedback because the conversation around race and anti-racism and all of that, it changes so quickly. When I first started writing both books, I was spelling women with an X. And then I had to go back and take order for out because that got co-opted by Tufts. Like I've had to just learn that you can do something and you can believe with all of your heart that it's the right thing to do. But if someone comes and says actually it's not, then you have to you have to listen to that and take that on. And that's what I'm asking people to do in my work. I'm saying you have to be vulnerable. You have to try hard. You have to do stuff knowing you're going to make mistakes. And it turns out that now I have to do that. So. <laughs> Yeah, what, we've, what we're putting out. What I the book, book out. My book is
0: out twenty seventh of May, so um, I'm in a, in a in a nice window between the intense experience of writing it and the reality of it being any, in anyone's hands, yeah, which is what becomes a product. Become a product, and you know, I do feel like I mean, I can't believe you turned something around so quickly because I do feel like I need to sit with it a bit now and be able to talk about it. Not being right in it because it, yeah. For me, I've never had anything spin my head out in in quite the same way as writing a book. It's unbelievable.
1: It's a really strange process.
0: It's a really strange and and I think. Well, there's a few things. From advertising, you could pull on teams, you could pull on different people. Yeah. You were surrounded by smart people, which is the thing I miss most. And and the thing is, you can't ask someone to quickly read a book for you. you you've you got to sit in that space on your own, I think, for, for a lot of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm very lucky that I know that Turning It Around in Nine Days sounds wild. It is, if we're honest, it's quite a small book. And I was able to say to like my partner, can you read this and tell me if there's anything absolutely wild in it? Um, which is, and I wrote it all in like, um, like Google Slides. Like I wrote it like a Did presentation. You? Mm-hmm. You can,
0: that makes sense, actually.
1: <coughs> um, so yeah, I think that whole process was pretty unconventional. But I think people don't really talk about, like, I think, I think publishing is really mysterious. <laughs> I think people have kept it mysterious. I don't think it needs to be mysterious. It's just a type of work. Yeah. I think that mystery makes a lot of people feel like it's not accessible to them, like it's not something that they could do. But it is. But that's not to say that it's not hard because there's yeah. so few things that you spend so long, like Millennial Black's been years of work and research and all of that. There's so few things that you spend years working on, like you say, on your own before you send it to someone you're like do you like it is <laughs> it's like it? all right <laughs> yeah I think for
0: me it's, I'm, I'm really torn again to go back to the idea of privilege I am utterly aware that to write a book is like is up there with my life goals and an absolute dream and so therefore it's often quite hard to complain about you know in the middle of it I was like you shouldn't be complaining you shouldn't be There's complaining so much to complain about though. yeah it, it really is and yeah, I mean, I, I a part of me is that like, well, that means you put you put yourself into it. But again, that means you can't go. Oh, I, oh, I didn't really try. I really did try. I yeah. tried really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so, if it if it goes badly, but I think that's a good experience of of putting your neck on the line. Is like this is what I believe. These are my thoughts. Not everyone has to agree. Mm-hmm. And that, especially in the era that we're in, where yeah, people don't people love to shout you down, but I've really as this comes out, I'm gonna stand by what I've written and and believe it, I'm giving myself a pep talk here. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's useful, keep going. But it's true, isn't it? Like you the thing with something going to print is it's there and you can't You unlike an Instagram post, you can't edit it. Yeah. it can't be deleted and so it is a line in the sand and I'm sure within a year some of what I've written as you say won't won't stand up but, but at this point in time it's a marker and I'm actually really glad to have a marker of 2020 because it's a year unlike anything else I'm talking about myself I'll be quiet no,
1: no it's just a two-way conversation and I think that's really hard because like if i had more time if i did it again would ally even be the word that i used i don't know i don't know but it's out there and that's that's where i am Mm. and that is so strange in a culture and an environment where we're so used to being able to edit what we've said and we're so used to being able to like yeah delete things or take things down or make a change but yeah that's a marker of where we were when we made it yeah and what we thought was necessary and what we thought was the best thing that we could do. And that's what I think I have to remember when I think about um, what I've made.
0: Because you can't write something timeless about a subject that we're hoping that things will move and that progress will be made. You know, What you absolutely want is that every year that feels further away because then things have shifted, I, I think.
1: Yeah. The dedication in Millennial Black is to young black girls everywhere I hope that by the time you grow up this book does not need to exist because oh, I don't want us to have to be doing this forever No,
0: oh, it's so powerful, it's going to make me cry I'm really I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, really emotional Pisces but I just think that I don't know, I think the last year has made and again, I'm a parent and I've got three kids at home and you're just really aware of the world that they're inheriting now and I think there's so much um, good out there but bloody hell it's a mess
1: yeah. Yeah, it's hard.
0: It's a mess, but but we've got to be optimistic for them, I think, because yeah, as I said, my books about trying to uh, answer questions for kids and then once in a while I do talk to kids and I feel like they already as I said in relation to race, they have so many of the answers. If it, it's it's us meddling with them that um that makes it complicated. Yeah. I don't know why, just, <laughs> why am I crying about the the young black girls. I just you just want every, things to have people have a, a good crack at it, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah,
1: it's, a
0: hard we, it's a hard conversation. Um, as we wiggle towards the end, I also liked in what I've read about um, millennial black is as you're having your lady gang, <laughs> and that's definitely. Something that the internet has given me, but that I didn't have in advertising, is you know, I I think I understood the idea of the boys' club, but I didn't understand what the power of that was until I had the version of it on Instagram, where what what happens when women lift each other up and and share the insight and share the experience is unbelievable, isn't
1: it? Absolutely, and I think I think I've been really grateful for Instagram in a way that I had never anticipated in as much as finding those people, finding those communities, really bolstering those communities. In a year that we haven't been outside at all, um, it's been really good to have those people who you've even never met to be part of that sort of feeling of community. But it's really important to me that Lady Gang is kind of a misnomer because it's not just women. Um, I would say at the moment the majority of the people, because of my background in that sort of very white, very male agency world, the majority of the people in my lady gang are probably male identified people. Um, but I'm not changing the name and they don't want me to. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be friends with men who don't want to be in the lady gang. I want to be friends with men who are excited to be in the lady gang. 100%. And I think it's really valuable because I think the lady gang is really based on um, the idea of the shine theory, which is something that Uh, Amina Tussaud and Anne Friedman, who are the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, um, coined. And it's just about um, a relationship of mutual investment. It's Mm -hmm. about having people who say good things about you behind your back. And I think that's so important. It's also about having that sort of openness. So Lady Gang is really good for having a group of people who are invested in you and you're invested in them. Mm -hmm. My friend is just interviewing for new jobs at the moment. And I'm like, okay. What's the minimum salary that we're talking about? How are we going to negotiate this? What sort of that? And like when I was going through mine, they were like, okay, how are we going to structure this? Let's do a practice interview. Mm -hmm. It's just about having people who want you to succeed and who understand that your success is their success because when you've got friends doing cool stuff, you can do more cool stuff and you look better and you're in good company. So it's about understanding that.
0: Yeah, because I think without going into... Uh, huge gender cliches, but for me in advertising, my my most difficult boss that I ever had, the one who curtailed my salary, who curtailed my my rising up, was female. And and, and it's, it's tragic that women do that to one another. That don't. I mean, there's a whole host of terrible things around that, but it's like we're so much better than that. We we have got the capacity to to really yeah lift each other up and and someone else's success is no reflection of my journey.
1: No, absolutely. But I think I think it's no coincidence that, that people feel like that. I don't think because I think there's so much that are like oh silly ladies if they just figured out they could work together it would all be better. But it's not that we don't think that because we want to we think that because we work in patriarchal systems that have told us that there is only space or at least a need for one of us so so if there's one person there then someone else coming up can feel like a legitimate threat if you're working in an environment where you're told well we only need one of you yeah and so it's not that we are thinking wrong it's that men oh I have a stat, it's okay. men start off in the workplace in the most junior roles, according to a 2018 Lean In Foundation study, at about 30% representation. So they start with the highest representation of any group. But by the time we look at the C-suite, that has grown to 68% representation. So when they get more senior, they see more people who look like them. Mm. And they are the only group who have that increased representation as they grow as they go up in seniority in the business every other group diminishes whether that's women um more specifically white women black men black women all of those groups shrink massively in seen in representation as they become more senior and so we don't tell white men Someone else's success is your failure because they can see that there's space for more of them. Mm. But if you're from an underrepresented group, and especially if you have more than one area of underrepresentation, blackness and womanness, womanness and queerness, whatever mm. that is, the more we can say that we can see that there's only space for one of us. And so it feels like a competition. Mm. But I don't think it's us who are thinking wrong. I think it's structures that have been made to force us to do that. I couldn't agree more
0: couldn't agree more which is is a, a kind of a nice circle back to how absolutely vital the book that you are about to release is because you know it is needed isn't it like desperately and in some ways it feels bonkers that that it is needed or and as you say that you searched and it wasn't there but it soon yeah. will be it soon
1: will be and just oh. one one more bit about that sort of publishing um side because i know that you're on your publishing journey as well okay? yeah about it not being there, so many um, publishers, I was lucky enough to have offers from a couple of publishers and I was able to make a choice about who I wanted to go with. But so many others said, no, we don't need this book. We already have enough books by and about black women. That market is saturated. And that that is so wild. And that is so much what we've just been talking about. The feeling that if there's one, then that's enough. And the ones that they would mention were like Slay in Your Lane, which is which I haven't read because I'm scared of plagiarizing it. (laughs) Um, So now I finish writing, I can read it. Um, But I don't think that that is primarily workplace focused Mm -hmm. or Little Black Book, which is about work and is by a black woman, but doesn't ever talk about race. I don't think so. The perception that the market is saturated because there are two books that don't do the same thing is really strange to me.
0: I mean, how many books by white men about leadership will there be? Absolutely. How
1: many like, about Churchill or baking? Or, like, we know that we want... Leadership, leadership. yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, again, and, and we wonder why some of these industries feel out of touch. Anyway, there's two questions to kind of wind towards the end. What has the last year if we can call it that
1: yeah broadly
0: taught you about yourself about the world
1: it's taught me that I can do things I never imagined it taught me that I can ask people for things and if they are able to help they'll say yes Yeah, it's not scary to ask for things or to be told no like that's fine I've asked people for so many things this year um whether it's to set up a web shop where we donated all of the profits of Black Minds Matter, whether it's to pause the book I was writing to bring out something else really quickly. Like, I've asked people for things, and most of the time they've said yes, and sometimes they've said no, and that's not killed me.
0: (laughs) They're really big things, aren't they? They're really... And also... There's one thing saying those things and there's one thing to have actually kind of lived it and, and um, been okay with it. Isn't it wild that asking for stuff feels, like feels like a challenge? But it does.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. But, and then. Um, yeah, on. Um, I have a friend called Charlotte and her New Year's resolution a few years ago was to ask people for things. And so she was having the trouble at work and she asked me, how do you make this kind of campaign? And I was like, I'd love to help you. And then I was like, okay, if I would love to help Charlotte, maybe someone would love to help me. Yeah, that's been really valuable seeing that modelled by someone else for me.
0: Yeah, and also there's a a brilliant girl called um, Lucy Sheridan who's like big on comparison, Mm -hmm. and and sometimes when someone says no, it actually isn't to do with anything to do with you, literally a moment in their life. Like the things I've said no to, I will sometimes log in the back of my head and a year later or six months later or even a week later when I can do it, I will come back to them. It's so easy to jump to a conclusion that, that a no is a no is a no. Absolutely. It's just... Not right now. Yeah. And and when um, ever Lucy reaches out and asks for something, she always ends it with "and if I can ever help you, please ask." I was like, "That is such a that's a, such a great positioning." This isn't me taking from you. This this is a two way exchange, and uh, and I think it's really smart. Yeah.
1: Same.
0: And then my ask question again, inspired by my book, where it's broken up with a, a section where I say to people when I was a kid I wish I'd known dot 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 what was the thing you'd wish you'd known as a kid
1: that it was going to be okay I feel like I don't know if this is a universal child experience but oh there's someone moving in next door I don't know if you can hear it um I don't know if it's a universal experience but when I was a child things seemed so scary I had to do really well at school and I had to do this and I had to do that and be like this and straighten my hair and look like everyone else and do all of this otherwise everything was going to go wrong and my life wouldn't work and yeah I just wish I'd known um it's okay you're gonna be okay it's huge isn't it it's huge to be able to
0: think that yeah I don't know if we talk, people talk about that enough, that, that, that there is a feeling of, of being scared. I guess because you can't imagine what the future looks like and how you're going to get there. Oh, And also, the chances are your future doesn't look like what you think it's going to be anyhow. But I'm sure 12-year-old you would be pretty pleased.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so.
0: She'd be chuffed, wouldn't she? I think so, yeah. Do you think she would have thought she would have become an author?
1: No, I don't think so. What was she going to do? I don't know. I think it was hard to see beyond, like, you've got to get good GCSEs. You've got to try and get into a university. Like, Mm. there wasn't really... I don't think when you're 12, you can necessarily imagine 30. It's just like... It seems so old. Yeah, just the pressure to do things now, else some imaginary future won't be able to happen and it will be your fault mm. without even having an idea of what that thing that you might lose could be
0: yeah there's no wonder it's quite overwhelming because it's also abstract also mm-hmm. the thing that I really landed on is that you always as a kid I always think that I would get to a point when I understood things like mm-hmm. no. you know I'll get to 20 and I will have this down, and then you're like, oh no, I'll get to 30, and yeah, now I'm approaching the end of my 30s, and I finally understood that you're never going to be the completed version of yourself, you're never going to get it, are you? No,
1: no, but I think sometimes when you're like 20, you're like, I have actually got it, I've got it, <laughs> and then you get a bit further, and you're like, oh no, didn't have that, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think that's why the end of your 20s can sometimes be a wildly difficult time actually when all the um, confidence of youth has see- seeped out of you but you haven't worked out how to do adulthood, mm. not, that, not that anyone has. Well, I feel like I've been a bit emotional, I'm sorry about that, it's really not my place to come in here with a bunch of emotion but you can't, t- can't help it sometimes.
1: Well, just the young black girls—they moved you. They
0: did. I do Yeah, I don't apologise for that. It's just, uh, yes, yeah, so on I don't know. I think anything. I'm not going to try and overanalyze it. I'm going to move on from it. But thank you so much for your time. This was. Um, we had a few cracks at getting this episode in, but I always think that things work out at the time that they're meant to be, happen. So I really appreciate you taking a window for me, and in spite of the technology.
1: No, not at all. Thank you so much for inviting me. I was so excited when you invited me. Now I can't wait to. Okay, I need to say this name, Anna Wolf. I was on Clemmy Telford's podcast. I'm going to message you in a minute and tell you how exciting it is. Anna Wolf is going to lose her shit.
0: Uh, tell Anna Wolf that she's, a, she's an emotional wreck. <laughs> <laughs> what could you do? Well, thank you so much, and really, really, really good luck for the new job
1: thank you so much and I can't wait for your new book Um, uh, let me know how I can support it and thank
0: you for having me on your podcast and that's it another episode in the bag one that I ended up bursting into tears on mic, which yeah is something that I've never done before and my instinct is to feel a little bit embarrassed about that but actually you know what as I've touched on in previous episodes, particularly the one with holistic psychologists, it's okay to feel your feelings. And I was very moved by that passage because like everyone, and especially on the back of the last 12 months, it feels like our kids really are inheriting a very complicated world. And um, all we want is it, is it for it to be easier and better for them. So yeah, I'm alright for crying about that. But yeah, thank you Sophie for being such a brilliant guest. It was really a real pleasure for me to actually have the opportunity to chat about my two lives. So I quite often keep my advertising career and kind of my internet career as very two separate worlds, but they are yeah, both part of me. So it was nice to bring those together and just generally amazing to meet a, a like-minded person, albeit unfortunately just over a screen, but hopefully in real life too. So, Thank you very much for listening. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your mates about it and join us next week. Thank you very much. Well, if you got this far, you have probably worked out that I have written a book. It is called But Why? And it's how to answer tricky questions from kids by having an honest conversation with yourself. And it is available to pre-order now via the link in the show notes.